Hip-hop music, which rose from the rubble of the boogie-down Bronx, is arguably the most dynamic endeavor by blacks in the post-civil rights era, especially by black youth. A mixture of music and culture, MC rapping, DJ breaking, dancing, and graffiti, godfathered by DJ Cool Herc, and pushed and propelled by black and Latino youth, it became a billion-dollar genre displacing rock and roll and rhythm and blues within the music recording industry. Now 50 years old, it has set the cultural norms and reference points for young Americans, and in some cases for the world. It is, however, viewed by some as misogynistic, violent Negro music. For others, it is a music of resistance, articulating the grievances of the urban dispossessed, people often ignored by those in power. Whether good, bad, or ugly, it has refused to be ignored. However, a specter haunts hip-hop the specter of phantom politics. This is From Black Power to Black Trauma, a pause series that explores phantom politics. I'm Norman Kelly. There's a specter that haunts hip-hop, the specter of phantom politics. Hip-hop music and culture has been vastly more dynamic than African-American politics in the post-civil rights era. But hip-hop suffers from the same affliction that has bedeviled African-American politics in the post-civil rights era namely phantom politics. Phantom politics, as covered in episode four, is the appearance of political action that doesn't have a programmatic agenda or results in a change in altering political and or economic power dynamics. It is performative, often claiming to be a movement, i.e. a political movement. But a political movement, to quote Adolf Reed, is a force that has shown a capability over time of mobilizing popular support for programs that expressly seek to alter the patterns of public policy or economic relations. After the civil rights victory that ended Jim Crow segregation in the South and ensuring the right to vote and opening public accommodations in the North as well, the civil rights movement faltered in the second phase of promoting an economic agenda that wanted to address work and poverty. Black Power arose as an alternate program to the integrations agenda of the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King and others. It, Black Power, insisted on black independence and was strong on black pride, black heritage, and consciousness, but abysmally weak on creating any structure organizations to actually achieve power. The legacy of Black Power tended to be rhetorically stronger than actual political accomplishments. After the defeat of black power by the mid-70s, African-American politics began a train of pseudo-political events. The National Black Political Convention in 1972, to the presidential campaigns of Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, to the Million Man March franchises in the 90s, to the numerous black leadership summits, to black agenda announcements. These pseudo-political events became the staple of black politics, all of which are the hallmark 
of phantom politics. Such events masked the reality that nothing was being done to address issues, especially in regard to the poor and working classes. African Americans had been incorporated into the political system without the benefit of creating independent organizations that could democratically pressure the system to address working poverty. It is the appearance of political action, that is, phantom politics, meaning no actual mobilization or organizing is taking place in order to obtain power to improve the lives and expand greater participation that has defined much of the post-civil rights era. And this is where hip-hop entered. Hip-hop music and culture rose from the rubble of the Bronx during an era that saw the transformation of the black working class into the underclass. It also began during the deindustrialization of Manor Factory, which hit New York City hard with the loss of half a million jobs. Hip-hop is the product of the generation that was born between 1965 and 1984, and they are the children of those adults who experienced the transformation of then-Negroes into black people in the 1960s and 1970s. Both the generation and the music and culture of hip-hop were born into and came of age when phantom politics had defined Afro-American politics for nearly a generation. Those who had grown up with parents who had been more radically influenced by black power and were influenced by the legacy of the political struggles of black liberation era were left with no functional legacy of organizations or a political movement to deal with the realities of poverty, crime, drugs, social dysfunction, and police brutality. Different times produced different music. What's interesting about hip-hop is that some variant of the genre, let's call it nation-conscious rap, is produced during the apolitical 80s and 90s. By apolitical, I mean decades where African Americans had independently demobilized themselves and had not created any significant political movements such as SNCC or SCLC or the Black Panther Party. The 60s not only witnessed the rise of new organization and movements, but numerous songs and tunes that were the soundtrack of that era. James Brown, Say It Loud, Black and I'm Proud. The Ball of Confusions by The Temptations. Slide the Family Stones, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. Aretha Franklin's Respect. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn. And a classic, The Last Poet's Niggers are scared of revolution. Hip-hop, on the other hand, interestingly, came into the world when African-Americans, especially those at the bottom of the well, had become apolitical and had no significant mobilization. Yet Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five produced a message. Run DMC rapped about hard times. And Public Enemy, arguably the most nation-conscious hip-hop act, delivered the word in the Night of the Living Bass Head. And NWA produced arguably the most insinuated political song of that time, Fuck the Police. So what is it about hip-hop that makes it political, more activists than soul and R&B of yesteryear? Based on those definitions as I've heard them, there, there has to be such a thing as hip-hop politics. Harry Allen. Hip-hop activist and media assassin is a writer and producer, perhaps best known for his affiliation with the legendary hip-hop group 
public enemy. Allen is the founder of the turntablist Septet Harbinger and an advisor to the upcoming Universal Hip Hop Museum. Because hip hop itself is a form of politics. You can't have hip hop without politics of the kind you described. Um, okay. Grandmaster Flash uh, stuck got power out of a uh, out of a um, lamppost. That's that's re that's someone you know acting to get power literally to get resources to create what's now known as hip hop culture. He went on to explain hip hop activism as such. What one could use hip hop to activate for a cause um, in which one believes. So for example, one if one believes in hip hop and one embraces hip hop, one can identify other people who do and can then on on ideas that are related to hip hop or just one's say credibility within hip hop, reach out to other people and encourage them and persuade them or make an analogy between the things that one is getting or seeking with hip hop culture. To my thinking, um, that would be utilizing hip hop, you know, to to be active, to 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 do something. Harry Allen then gave an example of how the personal can be political or the political can be personal. I met my wife at a um at a voter registration drive in Harlem that was organized using hip hop artists as part of the draw as a way of getting people to a place where they could be registered. Artists would perform and you know they would encourage you to go over there to the table to register. I mean that could be seen as a form of hip hop activism. And you could do that around anything at all which requires one to be active. I later posed the question to Harry Allen if hip hop is a music of resistance especially in regard to white supremacy or white domination. Well, then you get into the question of what what is resistant to white domination. You know, if 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 you say we're doing an action against white domination and when you're done, white domination is still dominant, did you actually get anything done? Did you actually act it? Alan offered a nuanced take on resistance. If one if if certainly one can through hip hop talk about white supremacy mm -hmm. or engage in activities that they think will lead to it ending or being dismantled. Um, certainly one can do that. Um, again, I've raised the question of, of if something is not effective. Given that some hip hop artists and some listeners of the music openly talk about resistance and fighting the power, why hasn't it generated a significant political organization or a significant political movement? I would say, based on my observation of it, the mass of it is not about it's not for that purpose. The organization, the organization hip hop has produced is the organization of hip hop producers and, and music makers, which is a loosely defined kind of set of people who believe in hip hop and make it. The hip hop's goal or purpose in short, you might as well ask why haven't SNCC made any good hip hop records? That's not what they exist for. Alan's point regarding SNCC not making hip hop records is a misplaced analogy. SNCC would have been into either soul or R&B. Motown, Stax, James Brown. However, Allen is on point in regard to the purpose of SNCC wasn't making music, but assisting soda and blacks in ending white domination. 
hip hop main function is the production of music. Yet, if one views the PBS series Fight the Power and listen to Chuck D, hip hop has a responsibility to educate as well as entertain. But throughout the series, Chuck admonishes listeners to fight the power. But how can one fight the power if one isn't organized with others along with a common agenda to do so? Hip hop music has been masterful at articulating issues and grievances of the post civil rights generation of blacks, but it hasn't been successful in at inspiring a new crop of leaders or organizations. Instead, the predominant ethos of hip hop has been articulated by artists such as Jay Z, 50 Cent, and Kanye West. Get rich or die trying. Hip hop, to some degree, is the product of phantom politics and has produced its own version of phantom politics. And there is no better version of this iteration of phantom politics than watching the PBS four part series Fight the Power How Hip Hop Changed the World. Produced by Chuck D and Laurie Bula. The series is an accounting of hip hop politics, activism, and culture from its inception to the current era. I grew up in a musical household. My dad was a band director and a music educator. So I,、uh, and I was in choirs and bands, you know, throughout childhood into adolescence, pretty much. Another person pulled into the mix about hip hop is Cedric Johnson. He's a professor of Black Studies and Political Science at the University. Of Illinois in Chicago. His books are Revolutionaries to Race Leaders and After Black Lives Matter Policing and Anti Capitalist Struggle. And I grew up with hip hop. You know, the song Rapper's Delight was first released, but also Africa Bombada and all these other artists. I mean, I wasn't in New York, which would have meant I would have been exposed earlier. But、um, yeah, I mean, you know, hip hop, jazz,、uh, RB. You know, I grew up in the town where Zodico music you know,、uh, began. So Zodico was a big part of my, my childhood. And then we got into discussing the noise, which is hip hop, and what I have called over the years the political economy of black music, meaning how black music, in this case hip hop, is situated in a capitalist mode of entertainment production. Murray Foreman has a book called The Hood Comes First. But there's a great chapter about that transitional moment in hip hop when it goes from being underground local culture of the Bronx and the other boroughs of New York to becoming slowly a, a national industry, right? And that happens so fast. The pivotal point is the 1979 hip hop tune Rapper's Delight, produced by Sylvia Robinson. Until then, hip hop was a local underground music form. That tune began to change. But then that's quickly followed, right? You can almost see how people begin to pay attention. And when they see that it's viable economically, there's more and more investment by Hollywood, by you know, the music industry on both coasts、um, in hip hop. But like Foreman's chapter is great because he really, he really gets, into, he gets into these early figures like Sylvia Robinson, right? So Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill、uh, Records kind of steps in and makes that first record. And you know, there's tons of debate among the old head. Hip hop, you know,、uh, folks about the, that record and what it meant. You know, on the one hand, it was, it was a, it, it passed over the real practitioners, the real, you know, people who were in parks and in basements and other community center parties who were doing the work.、Um, and it was like a prefab type of, of group, right? So,、uh, Sylvia Robinson wasn't concerned about Grandmaster Kaz or Cold Crush or whoever, you know, to, to do, do the record. She basically found some guys and recorded, you know, Rapper's Delight. But In her doing that, 
uh, and the high success it had, it opens up a path for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and all sorts of other people uh, to record on, on Sugar Hill Records, right? So there's that kind of, of, you know, there's a lot of contradictions, right? So she does it, it's kind of opportunistic, but then it creates opportunity for, for other artists. And this opportunity opens up a space for a specific type of hip hop art. You know, one of the twists right now is that you've got these very successful rap artists have taken on uh, a really different persona, right? And, and not just persona, they've actually shown themselves to be, you know, who I guess they always were, which is that they have no predisposition towards any kind of political life, right? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm, like the situation with Jay-Z, right, where he was, he justified his lyrics in the song he did with DJ Khaled, right? God did by basically saying that being called the N word or being called a capitalist for him is a new version of, of the N word. With this prevalent ethos, it's understandable why there are scant forward looking hip hop organizations. The intentions of, right, you know, are not the intentions of any other musical form, right? Now, I wouldn't say in the early goings, right? I mean, you, you get the message from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five because of where they are, right? And they feel the need to comment on it. You also get that from um, artists in the 80s and 90s, you know, early 90s who were talking about uh, the Reagan-Bush period, right? So there's kind of strong condemnation of it. Not much in the way of solutions, right? Other than self-help and personal moral rehabilitation. Maybe the best example of this is like the the uh, Stop the Violence Coalition's 1989 song, uh, Self-Destruction. I mean, I showed that to some students recently and it's amazing to watch it now. One, they talk about black on black violence, to use that term essentially, right? Where we know now people recoil when they hear that. But, but we know in the eighties to condemn black on black violence was a moral thing. It's like, you know, we should not do this to each other, right? And it wasn't like, oh, this is a backhanded way of, you know, criticizing black people. It's like, no, we don't need this kind of uh, destruction. Johnson explained how that critique had its limits. It was a progressive position to take then, but they don't necessarily talk about structural issues, right? It's all about individuals and, you know, why we can do better and what you should not do, how your behavior should be modified, you know, uh, but there's very little politics. And that just that's part of just the times, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like a mirror reflection of the right wing uh, politics of the times version of it, to be honest, you know, black version of it. Um, maybe coming from a better place, uh, from a better heart space, but still the same conclusion, you know, that the, we can't look to the state. What we need is, is, uh, is, is moral rehabilitation. The inability of Blacks to move beyond a moral critique of Black-on-Black -black violence and not confront the underlying economic consequences of the destruction of the Black working class, which led to the drug trade, which increased violence, was merely another aspect of phantom politics and was reflected in hip-hop music of the time. So I think that, that, um, that's been one of the problems of it, right? You know, and, and even then, you know, we get a whole lot of music in the, in the late 80s and early 90s that condemns police violence. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of pointing in the direction of the problem of mass incarceration, right? They, they can't name it yet. We're not using that term yet. But they're certainly identifying the way it's felt, you know, in communities and in neighborhoods. That hip-hop may be able to generate critiques but not mobilization to correct problems, maybe due to the flaws of the form. Some of it is the flaws of the form, right? You know, when you're, when you're seeking, uh, as so many artists are, recognition and to make it, you know, to become successful, there's a disincentive to do, you know, things that aren't going to uh, curry favor or, 
you know, find agreement among corporate executives because they're the ones who in the final analysis are making decisions about what we hear. That Cedric Johnson brings up corporate executive, brings up the question as to who exactly runs, controls, and owns black music. The, the music we hear, the stuff that becomes popular, the things that are played on, on radio stations, you know, multiple times a day, is certainly driven by, uh, you know, market research, test audiences, you know, and, and the machinations of, of corporate executives and what their bottom line, what they want their bottom line to be, more so than what the artists may have in their hearts and minds, right? I think that that's kind of like an overstatement. And why I always get frustrated when I hear hip hop artists now talk about the streets and, you know, trying to connect their music to some sort of authentic place when that's totally not the way the music industry operates. And they know that, right? They know that from their wardrobe budgets and the flights that they get to, to make trips to LA and, and New York City for different things. They know that they are just as enmeshed in, um, you know, corporatized, uh, cor heavily corporate music industry as any other Hollywood actor, right? Who has to navigate all these different contrary forces. So it's sort of odd, but, but the call of authenticity or the performance of authenticity is still at the heart of a lot of, of hip hop, uh, you know, music and, and, um, and public relations, right. Even though it's not so central to, to, uh, how this industry works. And how does this industry work? The music industry, as critic Harold Cruz noted, is a part of the country's mass cultural communication industry of which black music and in this case, hip hop is a major golden nugget. As Cruz wrote, mass cultural communication is a basic industry, as basic as oil, steel, and transportation in its own way. Developing along with it, supporting it, some serving to it is an organized network of functions that are creative, administrative, propagandistic, educational, recreational, economic, and cultural. Taken as a whole, this enterprise involves what C. Wright Mills called the cultural apparatus. Only the blind cannot see whoever controls the cultural apparatus, whatever class, power group, faction, or political faction, also controls the destiny of the United States and everything in it. What Cruz was inserting when he wrote The Blind Cannot See It was that for years the integration forces never understood that black music and other black cultural forms could have formed the basis of the very profitable wings of the mass cultural communication industry. The problem has been that blacks themselves had, haven't realized it until too late. Cruz had been one of the very few intellectuals, more than likely the only, who had seen the social, political, economic potential of black cultural forms. As Cedric Johnson himself noted. Cruz makes the case, a chauvinist point about Black people, right, which is a good one. He actually says that, you know, everything that's great about the United States, essentially, was created by Black people, right? <laughs> you know, and he talks about jazz music and the blues and, um, you know, Negro idiom. And, and in a way, he's right, right? He's saying that, you know, Ameri you know America's popular music after World War II or at, at the time of World War II is jazz, right, as a form. And that is something, you know, what is improvisational aspects, uh, the different instruments that are used, different different kinds of formations. 
this was something that sprung out of black working class life, right? And and he's saying that forcefully, and in the sense that you know um, black people are major cultural forces in the country. Um, they've presented something that's very original. Uh, multiple things that are very original to to American, you know, music, dance. Um, I guess you could even talk about other aspects of culture too, you know, culinary. And they're not recognized for that, nor are they compensated fully for it, right? So he's making he's making an argument about exploitation. So kind of, I think, stretching Marxism a little bit to talk about the way that Black people's uh, cultural products are are appropriated, but they're not necessarily compensated for um, for what they've contributed. So it's kind of a more abstract uh, abstraction of of uh, of uh, exploitation in, in the real sense. But I think from that point, he's saying that you know what, if Black people controlled specific institutions, not only could they um, be enriched by that, right? But they could also use those same uh, institutions to promote uh, a different view of America. Or put another way, African-Americans for about 100 years have been sitting on a gold mine of their own talent, musically as well as athletically. Cruz had the rare insight to see that the demand for black freedom had to be waged on three fronts, political, economic, and cultural and that black cultural forms have been driving Americans' mass cultural communication industries since the 20s. However, black music as an economic force controlled by blacks themselves has been impeded by two factors. One, the dominance of white control of the music recording industry, and two, by blacks themselves, particularly the educated class the intelligentsia that never had the imagination to see the dynamism of black cultural forms and talent as a source of economic development. This also holds true for black athletic talent, which is given vivid form in the film about Nike and Michael Jordan, the film called Air. This has meant that black music and black musical talent has been ripe for exploitation because the educated class of blacks have long held disdain and social contempt for the black masses that have produced gospel music, blues, jazz, R&B, rock and roll, soul, funk, and hip hop, and future forms to come. The inability and unwillingness of African Americans to exploit and defend their own cultural talent has been incalculable. Whites have grown rich off of black fun for years, from mental shows to the modern American music recording industry. But it has only been blacks themselves who have belatedly realized the money-making potential of their own folk culture. Carnegie Woodson, the father of Black History Month, once noted, in the schools of business administration, Negroes are trained exclusively in the psychology and the economics of Wall Street and are, therefore, made to despise the opportunities to run ice wagons, push banana carts, and sell peanuts among their own people. Foreigners who have not studied economics but have studied Negroes take up this business and grow rich. 
African Americans have historically ignored the wealth-generating potential of their own cultural talent until too late. Even today, black graduate schools, by and large, don't even offer case studies of black recording companies such as Black Swan, Motown, Stax, Def Jam, examining how they began to see failed or gobbled up by the major labels of the recording industry. How are these black labels or race records able to accrue capital to begin with? How was the music distributed from point A to point B? We don't know. Black academics, the theoriocracy, are more interested in the cultural significance, the interpretation of lyrics, or the commodification of black music more so than the political economy of black music and how African-Americans miss out on forwarding the black freedom movement from the strategic triad of politics, economics, and culture. The weak development of black music as a source of potential capital is derived from the historical function that blacks, while segregated, never developed black music as part of a black economy. As Du Bois himself speculated, it is quite possible that it could never cover more than a smaller part of the economic activities of Negroes. Nevertheless, it is also possible that this smaller part could also be so important and wield so much power that its influence upon the total economy of the Negroes and the total industrial organization of the United States would be decisive for the greater ends towards which the Negro moves. Today, the it is black music. It has been a driving engine of the economic activities of blacks that has had a profound influence on the American economy. When one considers how hip-hop, along with its fashion, style, and attitude, has become the preferred soundtrack for advertising, black music is having an even greater impact than ever before, nationally and internationally. However, it is not an empire in which blacks themselves control. Or put another way, blacks have become, despite their contribution to American culture, glorified employees of their own culture. I want to thank my guests, Harry Allen and Cedric Johnson. This has been From Black Power to Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Thank you for listening. Swoosh sound by Emin Yildirim.